1: They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all new Far Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
0: This is the Starship Sover. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 334. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Did you miss us? That's all I wanted to know. Did you miss us? Did you enjoy farfetch Fable's takeover last week of Starship Sover? Just a one-off on this show. Yes, we, um, we're not playing fantasy on this show. We try not to now we've got its own dedicated podcast, which launched yesterday. So please come over. I've been putting out little kind of emails and everything like that, but Farfetch Fables is now live. You can subscribe. I put all links on if you haven't kind of stumbled over across them. Come on to the front of the website. There'll be all links there to kind of subscribe or listen to the show either in iTunes or, I mean, now it's when we, when we were a kiddie. It was always like iTunes was the number one place to, you know, to get it and download it. But now there's just kind of a host of different areas. So the feeds are all there. If you want them, just pop them in your podcatcher. Did you enjoy it? I hope you did. You know, and a big thank you to Nicola and all the gang, Mark and Gary, to kind of putting it all, you know, all together and so on. Because there's been some work, mind you. And I thought a, a few times on the journey, getting it there, do you know what I mean? That it possibly might not come off. But you know what I mean? (laughs) <laughs> you just keep on trying and digging and digging. Come on, man, get that whip going. And for where I sit now, it seems to be, you know, farfetch fetched. Fable seems to be in a very nice, comfortable position. You know, a lot of stories there kind of done and sorted, ready to kind of just, you know, trickle out there. So and good luck to Nick. You know, Nick's got the kind of Nick that's got the the show there to kind of, you know, twist it and turn it and, you know, do what she wants with it, you know. So hopefully everything goes fine there. So please, that would be fantastic. The launch of a sister site to all in the District of Wonders. We have a new baby. <laughs> yes, the proud parents. We have a new little baby, far fest Fables. Do pop over and have a look, you know, and have a listen to that and subscribe. That would be fantastic. So, what is coming on the show today? First up is the man himself. Well, actually, it's a J.J. Campanella really show special. First up is Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. Then we have the main fiction, which is James Patrick Kelly. And it's narrated by J.J. Campanella as well. A big story from James Patrick Kelly. One of the greats out there writing science fiction today. And like I say, it's just... Jim kind of delivered a, a narration there. And it's like it's, it's like, it's going back in time, Jim. Do you know what it's too Yeah, Which one am I talking to? I actually played James Patrick Kelly a, a while ago as well. So, And I've always been kind of badgering Jim Kelly for stories as well. So that feels like a lifetime, Jim. But with JJ Camp, like I say it? I've got his bio here. You know, and I'll read that out later on. Wow, it's just like from the start, Jim, man. That's yeah, bizarre. Wow. Anyway, straight in with the science news.
2: Greetings and mentatious revelations, my hyperbolically itinerant listeners, and welcome to this April 2014 Science News Update. I'm your host for this all exceedingly protenacious science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Okay, I'm going to start this segment with a technological death knell. Some pieces of technology simply fade away slowly and others are rushed to their deaths on high-speed trams. Compact discs seem to be moving into the horizon at some speed in between. CDs have been around since the late 1980s. I actually remember the first time I bought a CD because, A, it was in an unusual place, an RCA Columbia warehouse in Jacksonville, Illinois, and B, because the CD that I got was such a fantastic bargain, even though I didn't actually have a CD player at the time. I had quite an eclectic vinyl record collection at the time, and remember thinking what a pain in the neck it was to move that collection around every time I moved from one place to another. I was at a temporary teaching post at a little college in the middle of Illinois, and soon would be heading off to a doctoral program hundreds of miles away. The thought of moving those records again was less than pleasant. I remember thinking at the time that if I bought this awesome new CD collection of the well-tempered clavier... Then I could lighten my load of vinyl records just a little bit, and little did I know that I would begin a future in which I would not only be carrying all my old records, I would now be transporting all my new CDs as well. Well, tonight I come to tell you that CDs are going the way of the Buggy Whip, Cassette Tapes, Wired Telephones, and Lindsay Lohan. Last weekend, I went searching at several electronic stores, which I will not advertise for here. I was looking for a clock radio with a CD player for my soon-to-be six-year-old son. At the first store I stopped in, I found, yes, one clock radio with a CD player. It had minimal options, tinny sound, and was made by an off-brand company I had never heard of before. However, there were at least a dozen choice models of clock radio which had built-in ports for iPods. Okay, I thought... I'll try one of the bigger electronic warehouse places. Well, the bigger place had two choices. Another lousy quality off-brand clock radio with a CD player and a pink Hello Kitty clock radio. I knew my son was not going for the Hello Kitty clock radio, so I was stuck. I called my lovely wife for advice. She suggested since I was nearby that I should try the Goodwill store. She figured that lots of people would be donating old clock radios with CD players for tax write-offs, especially at this time of year. Um, She was wrong. Not only was there not a clock radio with a CD player, there were no clock radios at all at the secondhand store. I have concluded that the death of CDs will be here soon, that we will soon be expected to go entirely digital and download our music from iTunes and other sources. Frankly, I'm not sure whether this is a good thing, but things are changing whether we like it or not. The one thing technology is bound to do is change. New 2014 car models still have CD players, along with radios as a standard feature. The radios aren't going anywhere because radio programs and music are still out there and mostly free, but it may not be very long before you will no longer be able to get a CD player in your car just as you can no longer get a cassette player. For you youngsters out there, ask your parents what I'm talking about. My son picked up an old cassette tape I had in a box in the garage the other day and asked what the heck it was. When I explained to him what it was for, I felt older than I have in a while. Okay, let's get going on to actual science here before I start blubbering. Those were the days, my friend. Okay, the first science story of the night just kind of annoyed me, and you'll know why in a moment. You would think that after thousands of years of eating food, humans would have some clue as to what is good for you and what is not. But even after all this time, we are still arguing. I was annoyed by this story because I thought that nutritionists had finally come to a logical conclusion. But apparently nutrition and logic don't necessarily go together. In two independent studies people and mice eating diets low in protein were healthier and tended to live longer than those eating protein-rich diets. Both those studies can be found in the March edition of the journal Cell Metabolism and suggest that animal proteins, including those from meat and dairy, are less healthy than plant proteins. Okay, I thought we had concluded once and for all already that high-protein diets are A, not harmful, and B, good for you because they bring down weight and lower cholesterol. I thought we had finally concluded in the last decade that high-carb diets are bad because any extra sugar in your body gets turned into fat. Are we now back at square one? Carbs good, protein bad? Well, the answer seems to be yes and no. Let me explain. The first study comes out of the lab of Dr. Morgan Levine of USC. Levine found that out of more than 6,000 people, 50 years of age and older, those 65 and younger who got less than 10% of their calories from protein had lower risks of dying from cancer and diabetes during 18 years of follow-up than those who ate more protein. People who ate moderate amounts of protein, making up 10 to 19% of their diet, had, for instance, three times the chance of dying from cancer as those on a low-protein diet. This is what boggles my mind. Wait, less than 20% is moderate? That doesn't seem like a lot of protein to me, and whose definition was that? Okay, what else? Well, here's the good news. After age 65, though, the pattern reversed with high-protein diets, 20% or more, carrying lower risks of dying of cancer. And although my wife laughingly reassured me I'm getting closer to that magic 65 mark, I still have a long, long way to go to get there, thanks. Morgan said, quote, A high-protein diet is one of the worst things you could do up to age 65. Eating lots of protein, especially protein from animal sources, can be nearly as harmful to health as smoking, unquote. Great to know I've been killing myself the last few years with lean chicken breasts. What about the other study? Well, the second study comes out of the lab of Dr. Samantha Solenbiet of the University of Sydney. She found that protein proved more important than calories for determining health and longevity. Researchers fed 858 mice one of 25 diets that had varying ratios of proteins, carbohydrates, fats, and calories. Those that ate low-protein, high-carbohydrate diets fared the best. As the protein content climbed, though, the mice' risks of dying younger also seemed to increase. In contrast, however, dropping calories without lowering protein generally did not affect the rodent's lifespans. That result seems to contradict previous studies that have shown that cutting calories lengthens lifespan in organisms, including yeast, fruit flies, dogs, and mice. Solon Biet says, quote, The study may shed light on how caloric restriction actually extends life. We think that calorie restriction works not by restricting the amount of energy, but by restricting protein unquote. This, by the way, is an entirely new view on life extension. It had been thought up to this point that life extension by caloric restriction assumed you were just cutting down on everything. Apparently it may not be that simple. Maybe it's the proteins that are the real problem and not the rest of our diet. In Solymbiette's study, mice eating low-protein, carb-rich diets had lower activity in a gene called mTOR in their livers than mice on protein-rich diets did. And her previous studies have shown that reduced activity of mTOR usually predicts better health and longer lives in mice. She found that not only did high-protein diets cause an increase in mTOR activity, but mice also on low-protein, high-fat diets were less healthy and died younger. So let me get this straight. Too much protein, you die young. Too much fat, you die young. A carb-rich diet with low protein, and you'll outlive Lazarus Long. Why am I just a teeny bit worried here for those of us who still are well below retirement age and love our bacon? Is there any hope for protein lovers? Well, Solon Biet says, Quote, if your body can sustain protein restrictions, adults should try it. However, if you still want higher levels of protein in your diet, there's no downside to replacing meat with plant protein, such as those found in beans and nuts. If we're wrong, there's no negative side effects. If we're right, it means a reduction in cancer and diabetes, unquote. Great. Whoopee. Soy burgers, here I come. Yeah, yeah, I can hear you vegetarians out there laughing your behinds off. Tee-hee-hee-hee. I now have several physical science stories that have caught the attention of the international science community. The first of those stories is probably the most important. In fact, some science commentators are suggesting that this is probably the most important science story of the year so far. So important, it was even mentioned in a a TV comedy program last week, uh, the Big Bang Theory, oddly enough. What is the story? Well, there's now strong evidence that the universe is truly in an expanding state. This may not mean much to the common folk, but it does support the theory of a Big Bang followed by continuous growth of the universe outward, as opposed to a static, ungrowing universe. A group of astronomers led by Dr. John Kovac of Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics measured subtle variations in the polarization of the cosmic microwave background using the BICEP-2 telescope. The BICEP telescope is located in Antarctica and houses 512 detectors, each cooled to nearly one-quarter of a degree Celsius above absolute zero. I guess the keeping them on ice down there under helps to cool them all that cheaper. Anyway, the detectors alternate, half filtering out horizontally aligned light and half vertical light. By regularly scanning a region of the sky above the South Pole, the researchers were able to map a chunk of the cosmic microwave background with polarized light. I'll explain in a second why polarized light waves are so important here, at least as far as I understand. They released their results in papers posted online. And by the way, that makes me a little bit nervous because they have not submitted their results to an actual journal yet. Anyway, better-informed physicists than me seem very excited over this, so for once I will not judge the quality of the science. Astronomers have predicted that cosmic inflation, if it occurred, would have left marks on the cosmic microwave background radiation, the flash of light released into space about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, when the universe had cooled down enough for light to actually travel freely. They've suggested that one signature of that inflation would be found in how photons align and polarize. Gravitational ripples induced by inflation would have set up swirling patterns in that light polarization. Astrophysicists call this special swirling of photon energy B-mode polarization. And up until now, this has been exceedingly hard to detect. But detection of B-mode polarization of light waves in the cosmos... Would strengthen the case for universal inflation, mainly because primordial gravitational waves are the only known source that physicists can think of. Well, to sum it up, Kovacs and his team have actually detected the so called B mode polarization of light, indicating strong gravitational waves. In fact, the strength of the gravitational waves was much higher than Kovacs' group had expected. The surprisingly strong signal rules out several possible other models for cosmic inflation. Kovacs says, quote, this opens up a whole new window, a whole new research area. The high energies seen in the inflationary epoch make it possible to test some ideas from string theory, which many assumed were not testable. This is a playground for everyone to start testing their theories, unquote. Kovacs goes on to say that although he is hugely excited by his findings, as with all science, we need to be careful until all the data is in. Quote, it's not a fluke, that's for sure, but we don't know for certain if the signal is really from the early universe or if it's an artifact from the telescope, or even intervening galaxies. At least eight other telescopes are now looking for B-mode polarization. Their findings will help nail down the source of the signal and perhaps support our own findings, unquote. Staying in space... It was reported in the journal Science in the April 4th issue that the interior structure of Saturn's moon Enceladus may be one of the most interesting and promising places for life in the whole solar system. Dr. Luciano E.S. of the University of Rome and his team have for the first time measured the depth and extent of a subsurface sea on the ice-covered moon of Enceladus. The findings further support the notion that an underground reservoir feeds the moon's ice geysers and raises questions about Enceladus's habitability. For a long time, astronomers thought the 500-kilometer-wide Enceladus was a dead world, but the Cassini spacecraft in 2004 found an active moon, with geysers shooting particles of salty water through fissures that dot the southern hemisphere. The fissures expand and contract in rhythm with the tides of Saturn. It was thought that vast amounts of water lurked under that surface, but that water has been hypothetical up until now. To peek inside Enceladus, ES used Doppler shifts in the Cassini spacecraft's earthbound radio signal during three flybys of the Moon. The Doppler shifts, tiny changes in the frequency of the radio waves as it moved, tracked the spacecraft's speed. Whenever Cassini passed over a part of the Moon with slightly more mass, the increased gravity accelerated the probe. E.S. used the changes in Cassini's speed to map Enceladus's interior structure. Okay, I'm not a physical scientist, but that is very imaginative and very cool. E.S.'s team concluded that a 10-kilometer deep ocean must sit under 30 to 40 kilometers of ice and on top of the moon's rocky core. Extending from the South Pole to mid-southern latitudes, the sea has a volume of water similar to Lake Superior's. ES expected the result and says, quote, I would have been more surprised if we didn't find anything. Unquote. One thing that is not yet clear is how that sea feeds the ice geysers tens of kilometers above it to the surface. ES says, quote, It seems unlikely you'd have a lake directly connected to the surface. There must be an intermediate plumbing system to move all that water up and out. Unquote. As far as life is concerned on the moon, ES says, Some interesting chemistry may be going on where the sea's water meets rock. Any discussion of heat rising up from the moon's interior mixed with a salty ocean inevitably leads to musings on possible life, though no evidence suggests that aliens swim the seas of Enceladus. The presence of a warm, briny environment raises intriguing possibilities, This is all very neat stuff for anybody who's a lover of SF and wonders if there is life out there. Unfortunately, there is a sucky aspect to all of this as well. Whether there is life on Enceladus or not will remain a moot question for quite a while longer. First of all, we're obviously not going to Enceladus very soon. But the other thing is, is that the Cassini probe has only two more flybys of the moon planned. ES says, quote, We're essentially done with Enceladus for the moment. Unfortunately, it will be a long time before we return to a very interesting moon, unquote. Tantalized by the siren song, but still bound to our earthly mast. Well, still sticking to the astronomic theme of the evening, the next story is another update on the exoplanet search. Remember that exoplanets are any planet which are circling other stars out there in the universe, besides old Sol here. At this point, the number of exoplanets has been raised to about 1,700. Dr. Jack Lissauer of NASA and his research group just reported online at archive.org in a better way to ensure that what we are observing out there are really planets. Lissauer's group using the Kepler Space Telescope have confirmed the existence of 715 new planets orbiting 305 stars. Lissauer's confirmations more than double the number of planets established by the now crippled Kepler since 2009. In the past, the Kepler telescope was used to search for planets by looking for tiny dips in starlight that occur when a planet periodically passes in front of, or transits, as astronomers call it, its star. However, transiting planets aren't the only reason stars appear to flicker. Most commonly, the light dips can be caused by a chance alignment with an eclipsing binary. That's a pair of stars that orbit each other, and one, occasionally, blocks out the light from the other. Lissauer argued that several detections around a single star are not likely to be false positives. So his group calculated that eclipsing binaries would be very unlikely to cause multiple dips in a star's light. While one eclipsing binary getting in the way is possible, two isn't likely. Three or four is nearly impossible. Because astronomers were seeing many more stars that seemed to have multiple planets than expected from random alignments with binaries, Nearly all must be actual solar systems, the researchers at least reason. To confirm previous exoplanet candidates as real, a team spent many months with a ground-based telescope for each of those candidate planets. The 715 new planets emerged from only the first two years of observations, but Kepler kept observing for an additional two years before the second of its four reaction wheels failed in May 2013 making it now inaccurate for measurements. However, that does mean that Lissauer's team now has another two years of data to sift through. Lissauer says, quote, We are confident that this technique will turn up hundreds of more exoplanets, unquote. Okay, we're done with astronomy. Let's go back to biology for the next story. Usually it takes months or years to find evidence of someone's misconduct in science. This particular story shows that in this modern age of instant communication, you'd better be very careful about what kind of science you're making up in your journal articles. In the very prestigious journal Nature, at the end of January, a major research story was published by Dr. Haruko Obakata of the Riken Institute, which suggested that you could dip adult cells into acid and easily make them into stem cells. This acid method of making a type of stem cell, known as STAP cells, came under fire as soon as it appeared in two papers in Nature at the end of January. Many researchers since January have tried and failed to repeat the feat. Other scientists have pointed out that some pictures in the reports appear to have been tampered with or repeated, and some passages of text are identical to parts of other publications. Now, the Ricken Institute, where Obakata was based, has completed an initial examination and found that the lead researcher committed fraud by deliberately altering some of the images. Obakata said in a written statement that she received the ruling with feelings of, quote, indignation and surprise, and that she would appeal. Ricken is attempting to replicate the creation of STAP cells, but Dr. Masatoshi Taikichi, director of the Ricken Center of Developmental Biology, cautioned in a statement confirmation could take up to a year. All I can say is Obakata may be sincere and may simply be a victim of her own lousy science. By the way, I suspect, I suspect in the back of every scientist's mind constantly lurks this fear of whether they actually did their experiments with due diligence. Did they trust that undergrad a bit too much? Did that grad student misinterpret their directions or use a bit too much bias to consider the data? Did the PI themselves use a bit too much bias or the wrong method for performing or interpreting the experimental data? Was the equipment reliable? Were their statistical methods reliable and correct? We all want to be good scientists and publish good data, and we try our hardest, but it's easy to sink into paranoia Especially when you see someone like Obakata, who seems sincere in her denial. Maybe it really isn't her fault. But then again, who knows? The journal Nature has not said whether Obakata's papers will be retracted or not, as some of the co-authors have requested. The journal is conducting its own investigation. The last story of the night may make some of you uncomfortable because it has to do with body parts that make people blush. Just be aware, if you have young kids listening who are particularly sensitive, you may just want to skip this last story. In the past, I have chatted about genetic abnormalities of sexual development. Oddly enough, some of the intersexual phenomenon that I told you guys about were fairly common. There are, however, a set of genetic developmental problems that occur in XX females that are even more rare and a bit disconcerting. Whenever I take up this topic in my medical genetics class, I think the students become a bit uneasy. At the very least, they don't look very comfortable. I'm talking about diseases that cause a phenomenon called vaginal dysplasia. This is a condition in which a woman with normal female chromosome karyotype 46XX is characterized by complete or partial absence of the vagina. Vagina. The less rare form, and less severe, is called Meyer-Rokitansky syndrome, and it occurs in about 1 in 5,000 female births. Usually women affected by MR have a short or absent vaginal cavity, but they still have a uterus or ovaries, and they're simply not connected through. They are obviously infertile for that reason. The more severe form of this congenital malformation is called meyer rokitansky kuster hauser syndrome, or MRKH syndrome, or congenital absence of the uterus and vagina. This occurs in about 1 in 20,000 female births, and as the name implies, not only are the MRKH-affected women a bit like Barbie dolls, but they're also lacking in the rest of their reproductive apparatus. The cause for either of these diseases is still not clear, as far as I know, Several studies have shown there is no dominant genetic cause for MRKH, although there are chromosomal abnormalities. In the past, when I've spoken of treatment for these women in my classes, I have shrugged and said that the usual treatment is surgery to create a neo-vagina through the methods used most commonly on male to female transsexuals. Sadly, the outcome for affected women who have this surgery is ironically less effective than it would be for a transsexual, because of the different tissues involved in the operations. I won't go into those details. However, April news from the medical journal The Lancet and Dr. Tony Atala's lab of Wake Forest Hospital may change all that. The title of Atala's story is, quote, Tissue-Engineered Autologous Vaginal Organs in Patients, a Pilot Cohort Study, unquote. Atala has been key in the last few years in growing functioning organs like bladders and urethras in the lab and transplanting them into patients. He has now grown a functioning vagina in his laboratory. In his new study, Atala employed several female patients who had congenital vaginal dysplasia due to MR or MRKH. The patients were ages 13 to 18 years of age. He obtained a biopsy of tissue from each patient, then cultured, expanded, and seeded epithelial and muscle cells onto biodegradable scaffolds. The organs were constructed and allowed to mature in an incubator. Then, his group surgically implanted these organs into the affected women. And, this is not something Atala just did. He performed these operations eight years ago. Now, after eight years, the work on these women is being reported as the follow-ups are being conducted and the study is being finished. The upshot is is they found no long-term post-operative surgical complications. The tissue looked absolutely normal and grew normally in every case. Atala says, quote, Yearly serial biopsies showed a tri-layered structure consisting of an epithelial cell-lined lumen surrounded by matrix and muscle with expected components of vaginal tissue present. Immunohistochemical analysis confirmed the presence of phenotypically normal smooth muscle and epithelium. Unquote. Further, the women are apparently quite happy after eight years with their new organs. Atala adds quote, A validated self administered female sexual function index questionnaire showed variables in the normal range in all areas tested, such as desire, arousal, lubrication, orgasm, satisfaction, and painless intercourse. Unquote. Now here's the real kicker. The MR affected women who had their ovaries and uterus present have actually undergone menses since these operations. And Atala says he is certain that they can undergo normal pregnancy with proper precautions. This is amazing. I mean, it's another breakthrough in tissue engineering and bodes well for our future of replacing human parts that are never there in the first place or get damaged during our lifetimes. As Atala concludes, quote, We are very happy with the vaginal organs that we have engineered from the patient's own cells and implanted. They have shown normal structure and function, even with a follow-up of up to eight years. This is all very promising, and who knows what we shall be able to engineer in the next few years, unquote. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. Remember to reduce that animal protein intake. Don't give up on compact discs quite yet. And I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
0: There you go, Jim. What can I say? Big thank you, sir. Thank you so much. So next we're getting on to the main fiction and it is The Biggest by James Patrick Kelly. I'll give you a little heads up about James Patrick Kelly. James won the Hugo Nebula and Locus Awards. His fiction has been translated into 21 languages. With John Kessel, he co-edited Digital Rapture, the Singularity Anthology, Kafkes, stories inspired by Franz Kafka, The Secret History of Science Fiction, Feeling Very Strange, the Slipstream Anthology, and Rewind, the post-cyberpunk anthology. He writes a column on internet for Asimov Science Fiction Magazine and is on the faculty of the Stone Coast Creative Writing Programme at the University of Southern Maine. His story, The Promise of Space, has been selected by two different editors for their best-of-year collections, both of which appear shortly. You can listen to Jim Reed's stories on Free Reed's podcast. There's a link under that as well, so you can kind of grab that. And like I said, this story is narrated by JJ Campanella. And for those that didn't know, there's a, there's a bio here, and it's kind of nice just to kind of, you know, mull over it as well. J.J. Campanella has been a contributor on Starship Sofa for more than five years. He started narrations way back on show number three of Oral Delights on a David Brin story back in 2008, and has been narrated on on off for five years. He hosts the monthly SofaNord award-winning science news update on Starship Sofa, and has been doing that without fail since July 2008. J.J. has a doctorate in microbiology and teaches at the beautiful Montclair State University in New Jersey, USA. He is the author of more than 30 scientific research publications that delve into a number of topics covering plant growth physiology to seagrass population genetics... (laughs) Yeah, man, what? get down here, man. JJ has his own podcast site, com. And I'd like to say there'll be a link on that as well, if you want to kind of pop over there and say hello to Jim, where he narrates not only his own short stories and his novels, but also a variety of children's stories and pulp novels that have passed into the public domain. JJ also has a family that includes two young children of four and six, which makes anything at all, he accomplishes more more of a bloody miracle. (laughs) That's bloody true as well, Jim. and, And I'm not joking, mind you, when I say this. Jim... It's there. All He hasn't missed a month. Do you know what I mean? You can rely on end of the month. Jim's fact article is there, and like I say, it's just great. So, Jim, I want to say a big thank you, and a big thank you to Mr. James Patrick Kelly. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The
2: Biggest, by James Patrick Kelly. Big, known to his dear departed mother as Philbrick Van Loon was startled out of his reverie when a heavy in a cheap gabardine suit dropped into the seat in front of him like a piano falling out of a skyscraper. In his drowsy confusion, Big thought that the train itself had derailed. But as he gathered his wits, he realized that the Empire State Express was pulling out of Union Station, finally headed south to New York City. Guess who i just seen, said the heavy. Can't. The woman's voice oozed boredom. Jimmy Cagney. The seatback shuddered as the heavy thrashed disagreement. What would Cagney be doing in Albany? Babe Ruth, said his companion. Nope. Rin Tin Tin. Judge Crater. The governor. Roosevelt? Big stopped feeling sorry for himself, and he leaned forward to eavesdrop although the heavy had a voice they could probably hear in Buffalo. How did you know it was him? Been in the newsreels, hasn't he? Believe me, this is the guy. He could barely walk because of the polio. Big stood and pulled his suitcase off the overhead rack. They say he got better. The woman was still skeptical. If that was better, I'd hate to see worse. Big headed toward the rear of the train. He'd met the governor a couple of months after his inauguration. Everything had seemed possible in the summer of 29, before Black Friday had crashed the country. Now most folk were rubbing pennies together just to buy beans. Big was so broke that the whole of his sad life rattled around in a cardboard suitcase with a busted snap. But maybe this was a sign, Roosevelt being on the train. Maybe the governor could make the sun shine again. At least on Big. It wouldn't hurt to ask. The train's last carriage was an observation car. As the door wheezed shut behind him, Big hesitated, as if he wasn't sure where he was. He announced to no one in particular that he needed some air. Where was the observation porch? A codger in an old-fashioned suit and collar stiffer than Calvin Coolidge glanced up from the Albany Times Union in annoyance. Nobody else seemed to notice him, although Big spotted his quarry in the parlor at the rear of the carriage. They sat in plush armchairs beneath tall windows that were bright with October sun. There appeared to be three in Roosevelt's party besides the governor, two men and a woman. The woman was in her thirties, frail, nervous, handsome maybe, but certainly no looker. She wore a checked dress to the ankles that gave away absolutely nothing probably the secretary. A florid man with bug eyes was listening to Roosevelt as if he were explaining the meaning of life or giving the winners for the sixth race at Saratoga. A pall. The other man was hard and square and way too alert. He had big hands and a cop sneer and looked like he would make trouble for anyone who asked. As Big picked his way toward them, balancing his suitcase and catching himself on seats Against the swaying of the train, the cop rose. Keep moving, Polly. We're busy here. Big gave him a nod of understanding, then seemed to stumble over the suitcase. He caught himself on the cop's shoulder and peered away. Excuse me, Governor, he said. The Paul and the secretary looked up. Roosevelt kept talking. The cop bellied Big toward the front of the carriage. His hand clamped Big's elbow and began to turn him away. Philbrick Van Loon,' Big dropped the suitcase on the cop's foot. "'We met last summer in Utica, sir. "'You gave me the Medal of Honor.' "'Then Roosevelt noticed him. "'Did I?' "'The cop's grip eased, and Big stepped around him and extended a hand. "'Van Loon,' said Roosevelt. "'He wasn't sure, but accepted Big's hand, "'gave it one emphatic shake, and was done with it. "'A fine Dutch name.' That's what he'd said the first time they had met. Big remembered now how Big Roosevelt's head was, how his smile went off like a flashbulb, the way the dark pockets sagged under his eyes. It meant a lot to me, sir, being recognized by you, I mean, especially because I voted for you when you ran for vice president. From the smirk on the secretary's face, Big wondered if he'd overplayed his hand. I never got a chance to tell you that. Son... I believe you voted for Governor Cox for president. Roosevelt spoke with elaborate care, as if to a first grader or an alderman. He bent forward to tug at the knees of his trousers, which had ridden up his legs to show the metal braces. I was just filling the ticket. Then he straightened and twiggled it big. Max, make room for Mr. Van Loon here. He waved the cop off. He must remind us of his exploits. The cop glowered from a chair on the other side of the carriage while Big slid in next to the secretary. She gave him a limp nod and introduced herself as Missy LeHand. The poll was Senator somebody, first name Oscar, or maybe Arthur. "'So what brings you to the big city, Phil?' asked Roosevelt. "'May I call you Phil?' Roosevelt struck him as a man who didn't like to hear the word no, so Big shook his head. "'Sure, Governor, Phil is just fine.' Actually, he hated his name. Sometimes he thought it was the cause of all his troubles. Are you coming to see me dedicate the bridge? Fabulous achievement, isn't it? Bridge, said Big. The secretary was blocking his view of the governor, so he tilted forward to look around her. The George Washington Bridge, Missy said. It was all in the papers. Longest span in the entire world. Roosevelt glanced up at the fake candles on the chrome wall sconce and began to speechify. "'A mile long!' "'3,500 feet,' said Missy. "'Over a half-mile long,' he held up a finger to note the correction. Six lanes of traffic. Completed five months ahead of schedule for less than the original budget.' He seemed to be rehearsing his remarks. "'Mr. Amon is the engineer and Mr. Gilbert is the architect. Yes?' "'Yes, Governor.' Now Missy leaned forward once again blocking Big's view. She studied him as if she might need to identify him someday in a police lineup. I bet this one is going to see the monkey, sir, she said. Terrible mess. Senator Somebody was eager to wriggle back into the conversation. And how are they going to pay for the clean-up? That's a matter for Mayor Walker, said Roosevelt. He called in the planes without consulting us. The state bears no responsibility for what happened and will assume none of the financial burden of sorting these things out now. "'Still, Governor,' said the senator, "'when New York sneezes, Albany catches the cold.' "'I will not open the state's coffers to those thieves in Tammany Hall.' Roosevelt flashed his smile. "'However, should the mayor request a Kleenex, I'll be happy to accommodate him.' Big took the cue to laugh, although he realized— His time with the governor must be running out. Actually, he said, I was hoping to see the mayor about a job. There are so few jobs. Roosevelt fitted a Chesterfield into a cigarette holder. So many jobless. It's just that now that the Sky Guard and the Science Pirate are gone, Big continued, I was thinking that maybe... You want to take the Sky Guard's place? The cop's harsh laugh drowned out the train's clatter. The codger glared at them over his paper, and then picked up and left the carriage. "'Just because they're gone, Mr. Van Loon,' said the senator, lighting Roosevelt's cigarette, "'doesn't mean they'll stay gone.' "'Aha! You're that Van Loon!' Roosevelt pointed the holder at Big. "'From Utica! You saved those people in that fire! "'You have some kind of power. What was it again?' He turned to his secretary for the answer, but she just shrugged. Ah, Missy, I don't believe you made that trip. I left in the morning, as I recall, and came back before dinner. Terrible crime problem in Utica. Bootlegging. Rackets. Worst corruption in the state. The Genesee Street fire, sir, said Big. There were eighteen people trapped on the fifth floor. And you rescued them, said Roosevelt, pleased with himself for remembering. The senator frowned. You have some kind of a power? Big nudged his suitcase out of the way with his foot and set himself in the middle of the carriage. He checked the curved ceiling, maybe eight feet. But he could only do what he could. At least he was wearing his baggy suit. He always started by thinking about his feet, hungry muscles and greedy bone. His toes curled inside his shoes to grip imaginary stuff. He felt it flow into him, First, his legs went rigid with new substance, and then they grew. Big got taller, slowly at first and then faster, his skin stiffening into a hardened shell to support him. But he was nervous and too eager to impress, so he let the spurt go on too long. He cracked his head against the ceiling, breaking his concentration. Ow, shit! He gazed down at them. He had Missy's attention and could tell the Senator was impressed. Are you all right? Roosevelt seemed more concerned than awestruck. When he stopped thinking about getting tall, the stuff flowed back into his imagination. He'd never understood how he did what he did. All he knew was that it was difficult to maintain. His muscles always quivered as they returned to normal, and now, when the train lurched over some bad track, he staggered. The
1: luxury quality within reach go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com slash style
2: pop was up immediately to catch him easy there stretch i'm fine for a moment everyone considered what had just happened big slumped beside missy embarrassed by his swearing nice trick she said Maybe you should be in Vaudeville. The senator found his voice. What's the biggest you ever been? I touched the roof of the Adirondack Bank building once. Big raised a hand over his head. That's fourteen stories. Incredible, the senator whistled. How do you do it? I really don't know. I just think real hard and it happens. So when you're that tall, you must be able to cover ground in a hurry, said Roosevelt. "'Big strides and all.' "'Our very own Paul Bunyan,' Missy said. "'Big flushed, but her grin was more flirting than teasing. "'Actually, moving is hard,' he shook his head. "'My muscles lock and my legs get all stiff and—' His voice trailed off in embarrassment when he remembered he was talking to a man who needed a cane, leg braces, and a helper to go to the john. "'That's all right, son. I understand perfectly.' The governor reset his pince-nez glasses on his nose. So about this job you're looking for? I thought maybe I could help the police, you know, fighting crime like the Skyguard. That stuff sure didn't fight crime. The cop bolted from his chair again. Oh, sure, maybe him and the science pirate busted a few bootleggers, and they chased those jewel thieves. But did they catch them? No. Then robots came and busted into the Metropolitan Museum. Were there robots before these superheroes showed up? No. Next, they're fighting each other. He realized everybody was staring. We don't need that kind of help. His voice fell and his arm dropped. Worse than the crooks. I heard their last fight put some bystanders in the hospital, said the senator. Tore up Park Avenue so bad they had to close it between 32nd and 36th. But think of the people it put to work, said Missy. Roosevelt smiled. I'm not so sure we can support that kind of jobs program. Take your crime-fighting upstate stretch, said the cop, where there's nothing but squirrels and trees. Oh, pay no attention to him, Missy's stagey whisper was sweet in his ear. That one's just mad because this is supposed to be his day off. Nuts to you, the cop muttered. Was he mistaken or was she making eyes at him? "'Max has a point, Phil.' Roosevelt tapped Ash into a tray set on a chrome pedestal. "'There's not much call for that line of work. "'Do you have any police experience?' That was not a question he'd been eager to hear. "'No, sir.' "'What did you do back in Utica?' "'I was unemployed.' A moment passed, and then another. They waited for him to go on, but Big had nowhere to go. "'Unemployed?' prompted the senator. Your entire life? I worked for the a Actually, he'd lost that job when he was 14. Stocking shelves mostly. I ran the register sometimes. He'd gotten fire when his cash drawer had been light three times in two weeks. After that, he'd fallen in with Happy Reagan and his gang and had worked his way up from lookout to driver and finally to the bootlegger's main muscle man. When you got really, really tall, deadbeats crap silver dollars. It wasn't much of a job when they laid me off, and then my mother got the consumption and I had to stay with her most days. She died just last month. I'm sorry for your loss. Roosevelt's expression was polite but distracted. Missy, however, was clearly touched. Anyway, there was nothing holding me home, and after saving those folks from the fire and getting the medal and all, I thought maybe I might try my luck in the big city. He took a deep breath and made his play. "'I was wondering if maybe you could help, sir. "'I'd really appreciate it.' Roosevelt pulled the stub of his cigarette out of its holder. "'Well, you must understand, "'I'm not exactly on the best of terms with the mayor, "'and all the jobs worth having come out of Tammany Hall, "'not City Hall.' He snuffed it in the ashtray. "'Walker dances when Boss Curry twitches his strings.' He tucked the holder into the vest pocket of his jacket. I've been at odds with Tammany in the past, but there's a kind of truce at the moment. We've been doing each other little favours. You spoke at the dedication of the new hall, said Missy. And I've invited Curry and Flynn and McCooey to Hyde Park, he considered. You mustn't bother with John Curry, though. Not that he'd be likely to see you anyway. Missy, do you have one of my cards? She retrieved a briefcase. Take yourself down to the new building, said Roosevelt. "'Just off Union Square. "'See Jimmy Dooling. "'I don't know what kind of work you can do, Phil, "'but show him my card. "'He may be able to help.' "'Missy took a gilt fountain pen from her purse "'and scrawled something on the back of the card. "'Roosevelt, Missy, and the Senator "'all had the same bland expression, "'as if they were doing times tables in their heads. "'Big took the hint. "'This was how quality got rid of the likes of him. "'Big picked up his suitcase.' Thank you, sir. He took the card from Missy. Best of luck, Ville. Come to the dedication tomorrow. Big pushed through the observation car. So excited, he kept walking until he ran out of train. It was only when he sat down again he saw what Missy Lahand had written on the back of the card. Waldorf, nine thirty. Tammany Hall was half an hour's walk down Park Avenue from Grand Central Station. As he passed 34th Street, Big caught a glimpse of the crowd pressing around the Empire State Building, but didn't stop. Although the bricks of the new Tammany Hall looked like they had just come out of the kiln, and the white limestone trim gleamed, the architecture was supposed to be old-fashioned, as if George Washington had slept there, or at least stopped in for a sandwich. The lobby boiled with men of every shape and flavor, sweet and sour, rough and smooth, wearing plus fours or boiler suits, caps or fedoras. Big was directed to the third floor. At the desk in front of James Dooling's office, a woman sat reading a copy of PhotoPlay with a picture of Joan Crawford on the cover. His mother used to read PhotoPlay when he could afford the quarter to buy one for her. This woman looked nothing like poor, shriveled, Thelma van Loon. She was wearing a slinky silver dress. Her dark hair was cut in a bob and her eyebrows were plucked to the verge of extinction. It was a secretary. If she was a secretary, then Big was the Queen of Norway. Excuse me, said Big. She turned to page as if he hadn't spoken. I'm looking for James Dooling. A couple of men in suits were waiting on the bench opposite the desk. One of them leaned forward. The other one chuckled. That's funny. The woman kept reading. So am I. Will he be back anytime soon? If he figures out I'm here waiting to kill him. She shook her head. No chance. Big couldn't think what to say to that. Can I make an appointment? Not with me. Now both of the men were laughing. Big could feel the back of his neck burn. The governor sent me. I have his card. Do you? She looked up from her magazine then and winked at the men on the bench. Let me guess, is it the deuce of clubs? Big thought about telling her off, but for all he knew, she might be Dueling's mistress, or even his wife. Okay, then, thanks for nothing. He was halfway down the stairs when he heard somebody call. Hey, buddy. The man from the bench was tall and built like a stevedore. He was wearing a silky double-breasted jacket with just the bottom buttons done and straight-legged trousers that were too wide at the cuff. His tie was bubblegum pink. The name isn't Buddy, it's Big. Mickey McCabe. They shook hands. Look, I've been waiting on Jimmy for an hour myself, and I'm ready to give up. You have the look of a drinking man, if you don't mind my saying so. How about we drown our sorrows? Any friend of Franklin Roosevelt is a friend I'd like to make. You buyin'? You bet, Big, he grinned. I buy and sell. The Old Town Bar was near the quarter of 18th and Park. Boss Curry watches over this place, McCabe said as he held the glass door. So you can get served, if you know how to ask. Behind the storefront windows was a long room with a tin-tiled ceiling black from smoke. To the right were booths; To the left were plate-glass mirrors behind a mahogany bar that stretched the entire length of the room. Fifty-five feet. McCabe knocked on the bar's marble top as they walked toward the back. He and the barkeep exchanged nods. The further into the room they went, the darker it was, despite the green tulip-shaped lamps. They slid into a booth and a waiter appeared out of the gloom. Afternoon, Mr. McCabe. Afternoon, Pete. We'll have a couple of ham sandwiches. He nodded at Big. You hungry, yeah? Big nodded. There was something familiar about McCabe, even though he was certain he'd never met the man. And around, said his new friend. And the waiter evaporated. So Big, what brings you to the city? Looking for a job. He nodded. What's your line of work? Big surveyed the bar. There were maybe... Twenty customers. How high would you say the ceiling is here? Dunno. McCabe cocked his head and squinted. Fifteen feet? Twenty? Big slid out of the booth, raised an arm over his head, and extended his index finger. He grinned at McCabe. Then he got tall. He concentrated on keeping most of the stuff below his knees so as not to split his pants. When his finger touched the ceiling, he wrote, T H E S T I L T in the soot, and shrank back to normal. As he strolled through the bar, minutes before, Big had caught snatches of a dozen conversations, some hushed, some raucous, more than a few profane. Now there was only reverent silence, as if Pope Pius himself had bought around for the house. Then the bartender started clapping, and then everyone was cheering and McCabe pulled him back into the booth. "'How the hell did you do that?' Big explained, or tried to. Then the drinks came. He and McCabe touched glasses and knocked back a couple of shots of something that was clear as water and deadly as sin. He felt it knife down his throat, and then take a slice off the back of his skull. "'What's this supposed to be?' He tried not to sputter. "'Gin?' My dear old Da called it poteen. McCabe thumped his empty glass on the table. Me, I like to think of it as flavored fire. So let me get this straight. You could grow a hundred feet tall. No, no, more. But you can't move much. He settled back on his bench. What happens to your clothes when you get that big? Big unsnapped his suitcase. I had this costume made. Kind of like the Skyguards. He pulled the suit out and held it up by the shoulders. Knit elastic so it stretches. He admired the stilt's royal blue fabric and yellow piping. The stylized yellow ladder on the chest. He thought about adding a cape, but just this much had cost him his last dollar. McCabe was dubious. That stretches a hundred feet? No, Big flushed. I only get really tall in emergencies. He considered, then his face lit up. You bust out of your suit? He had a good laugh. Damn! Big as the Statue of Liberty and butt naked! Big stared at the gouge of the tabletop. The problem with the clothes was what had kept him in Utica all these years. Don't look so glum, pal. McCabe reached across to punch his shoulder. That'll get your picture in the paper for certain. He chuckled. But I don't get the latter. It's my symbol. Big folded the costume and slipped it back of the suitcase. Okay. It goes with my crime-fighting name. He nodded at what he'd written on the ceiling. The stilt. Like it? What's a ladder got to do with stilts? The food arrived. A thick slice of ham, Swiss cheese, and brown mustard, unseated rye, with a half pickle on the side. The waiter asked if they wanted anything else and McCabe slid both empty glasses toward him for refills. So why work for the law? Percentage is on the other side, if you ask me. Big understood, then, what he'd recognized in McCabe. His familiarity with the speakeasy wasn't just because he was a regular customer. This is your place. I own a piece of it, sure. Try the pickle. McCabe bit into his sandwich. Been on the other side, said Big. It got kind of hot. "'Thought so.' He spoke around a mouthful and then swallowed. "'I can tell these things, Big. It's a gift. But look, your problem is that nobody's going to hire you to fight crime in this town. I mean, look at what the law is against. A drink to take your mind off your troubles. A woman to remind you why you're alive. A friendly game to change your luck. We're grown men, Big. What are we supposed to do on a Saturday night?' Play tiddlywinks? The Sky Guard and the Science Pirate went after bank robbers. Bank robbers? He wiped his mouth on the back of his hand. You sat through too many matinees, pal. Look, those two costume slickers weren't on anybody's payroll. Self-employed, all the way upper class, and in it for themselves. He tapped the side of his nose. Just between us. I could find work for a guy with your talents, but it sure wouldn't be crime-fighting. No, sir. Seeing the look on Big's face, he held his hands up to surrender. Okay, just laying out options. You want my advice? Before you try Jimmy Dooling again, do something amazing. Let him open his morning paper and see how big you can be. They were finishing lunch when the second round arrived. McCabe toasted Big. To the stilt. Stand tall, Pally. They drank. Tell the truth now, he said, eyeing Big over the edge of his glass. You don't really have Roosevelt's card, do you? Big fished it out of his pocket and held it so McCabe could read only the front. They say he's going to run for president, McCabe said. Big shrugged. He didn't have any use for politics. He'd be a fool not to. McCabe dropped a quarter on the table for a tip. Even I could beat Hoover. Republicans turn everything to shit. He leaned forward. But that card is no good at Tammany, my friend. Boss Curry hates Roosevelt, even though they're making nice just now. You keep it handy, though. It'll really impress the cops. When they stood to go, McCabe turned from big to address his customers. Hey, you huckleberries, listen up. The bar went silent. This here is the stilt. Next time you hear it, remember, you met him here at the old town. Big couldn't see the Empire State Building as he walked uptown, because the buildings on Park blocked his view. He knew he was gawking like a hick from Utica. Twice he bumped into other pedestrians. The day's ups and downs had left him lightheaded, and when he patted the card in his pocket, the thought of Missy LeHand and what might happen at the Waldorf Astoria at 9.30 burned his brain like McCabe's hooch. His mother always used to say that there was no place for the likes of him in the big city, but she was gone now and he was determined to prove her wrong. More had happened to him in eight hours than had happened in Utica in the past eight years. He'd met Roosevelt, but missed dueling. McCabe had tried to pull him back into the nightmare and then pointed toward Big's most cherished dream. It wasn't enough to get tall. Big needed to be as amazing as this city, where the windows glowed with promise and every other door opened into a new world. If only he could stumble upon a hold-up or a fire or a garbo dangling from a skyscraper. And then he turned down 34th Street. For the first time since he'd discovered his power, Big felt tiny. If he got as tall as he'd ever been, he might be able to peer to the windows of the first setback of the Empire State Building. But that wouldn't be even one-fifth its height. The Adirondack Bank in Utica was a fireplug compared to this superbuilding. He slowed, in part from awe, and in part because of the smell. By the time he reached Madison Avenue, It was like cramming barbed wire up his nose. He tried to untangle all of the stink's evil strands. Rotting meat? Yeah. Shit straight from hell. Okay. But something cooked. No, burnt. Like an electrical fire or failing brakes. This last strand of the smell was fresh and sharp. Just past Madison, the crowd swarmed the street and both sidewalks. Some, like him, pressed ahead to see the spectacle. Others stumbled away from it, faces ashen, eyes bulging and wet. Big had to tiptoe around splashes of vomit on the street. How long had that monster lain sprawled at the base of the Empire State Building? A week? Ten days? He'd read that the first crowds had brought Midtown to a standstill. That had been before the enormous corpse began to putrefy. Still, there were hundreds of people surging around him, holding hats against their faces or breathing through scarves. Big buried his nose in the crook of his elbow and eavesdropped. Hundred feet tall, at least. Yeah, but that don't include... Happy now? Walked across the bridge for this? A crew of workers lashed a forty-foot-long arm onto one of the two logging trucks, Parked in front of the body Black fingers curled at one end The exposed flesh of the other Was purplish gray A fire engine idled nearby Firemen hosed the foul Runny puddles that had oozed From the severed arm into the sewer A punishment Giant apes and flying pirates And lightning men Kid, slice that arm right off Punishment for what? The body had landed on its back The head was still on the torso, but both legs were gone and the other dangled, almost severed. The shaggy black pelt was charred at the shoulders and there were savage burn holes in the chest. Construction equipment lined up beside what was left of the monster. A sling hung from the hook of a waiting crane. Two of the biggest bulldozers he'd ever seen strained against the corpse, their blades riding up its side and treads chewing asphalt, as they fail to get purchase. What are they trying to do? Turn him over, maybe. Get that sling under. You saw the lightning guy. Shot down out of the clouds. Crack. Maybe half an hour ago. Another damn superhero. Lightning strikes don't come down, Mabel. They shoot up. You're crazy. Excuse me. Big's heart was pounding. Did you say something about a superhero? Mabel was a short woman in a pillbox hat made of feathers. Sure, he was just here. Sear the arm right off with his lightning, just like that. A companion, an older man wearing a trilby and a silk scarf, snapped his fingers. What did they say his name was? Bobby, was it? Billy Bolt, said another man. Kid blasted holes in the chest. Looked like he was having fun. Then he took the one arm but couldn't finish the other. Turned himself back into lightning, said the older man. Amazing. Just a kid. Mabel blinked up at Big. She was wearing too much mascara. He'll be back. Do you think so? He looked kind of dazed. Probably has to recharge or something. Big spotted a reporter with his notebook working the crowd. Cameras flashed near the monster, although he couldn't see the shutterbugs. He should have known he wouldn't be the only one to take advantage of the disappearance of the Sky Guard and the Science Pirate. A kid who can change himself into lightning? Big didn't have much time. He threaded his way to the uptown sidewalk, scanning the storefronts. Newsstand, drugstore, laundry, bank. He chose Mendy's Deli. Nobody would be eating in this stench. Bathrooms for customers only, said the board counterman. "'Telephone!' Big pointed. "'Gotta make a call.' His suitcase caught on the folding wooden door, and Big had to stand it on end in order to squeeze into the phone booth. When he pulled the doors closed, there wasn't room to get the suitcase all the way open. He twisted the stilt suit out, stripped naked and wriggled into it. Then he took a deep breath. He realized his life up until that moment had been nothing but a warm-up. Now he was putting himself into the game— He struggled out of the phone booth and planted his feet to get tall. He'd practiced this trick back home, sending the stuff so that his torso expanded while his legs stayed normal. Only his bare feet hardened with stuff. That way he could run. He winked at the astonished counterman and bent nearly double to fit through the door. Big had gotten tall in front of people before, but never while wearing the costume. The stilt stood 14, maybe 15 feet The suit stretched perfectly. When he started for the corpse, the crowd parted for him. He could feel their eyes on him. Their astonishment was intoxicating. People called to him, shouted, shrieked. A teenage girl screamed. He jumped the police cordon and strode across the open space between the crowd and the dead monster. A beat cop came forward to stop him. You can't come this way! He gestured for the still to turn around. You just crossed a police line, chum. Afternoon, officer, the stilt called. I'm here to help. What did I do to deserve this? The cop placed himself in the stilt's way. You and that other freak, the kid. Nope, it's just me. He took smaller steps so as not to alarm the cop, but did not stop his approach. Name is the stilt. Another cop came running, clamping his hat down on his head. He was maybe 30 yards away. Just got a call from the firehouse to come down and lend a hand with the cleanup. The way the stilt had figured it, he might confuse one cop, but two would be trouble. The first cop had his hand on his colt, but the holster's safety strap was still buckled. The stilt slowed as if he meant to halt and imagine stuff flowing into his legs. He shot up another five feet. The cop's eyes went wide, but he did not give way. "'This won't take long,' the stilt said. "'Mister, I—' He stepped over the cop without breaking stride, clearing the man's head by a good two feet. He let some stuff go to his legs and started running again toward the monster. He did not look back. He came from behind the two bulldozers, so that the operators didn't see him until he stood between them. One wore a gas mask that looked like it might have seen action in the Great War— The other had a red bandana over his mouth and nose, and the engineer's cap pulled low on his forehead so that only his eyes showed. The stilt saluted, and the engineer goggled, then slammed his machine in neutral. Gas masks followed suit. I'm here to help, shouted the stilt. The engineer cupped his hand over his ear and shook his head. The stilt made a scooping motion, and the engineer cut the engine of his machine. The stilt leaned into the cab. Can I try something? Buddy, be my guest. We're just wasting diesel here. I'm going to lift it up, said the stilt. You and what army? The stilt smiled. Can somebody put a sling under it? The engineer considered, clearly full of doubt. Then he shrugged. Won't be the craziest thing I've seen today. He gestured for gas bash to shut down. I'll tell the crane, he said, and began to climb off the dozer. The stilt let all the stuff flow out of him until he was natural size. Standing next to the dead monster, he rolled the sleeves of his costume above his elbows. The stink here was strong enough to bring tears to a statue. He could feel something gluey squish between his toes. He turned his head to one side and took a desperate breath and leaned into the corpse, with arms down palms brushing against the thick hair of the pelt. His toes curled and stuff began to surge into him through the concrete sidewalk, summoned from the granite spine beneath the city. His feet were no longer flesh as they anchored into the city's bedrock. His arms stretched and burrowed beneath the dead weight of the corpse. His skin thickened into an impenetrable shell. Stuff clotted his chest, slowed his heart, Reinforced his backbone. Chin pressed hard against the body, he tried not to think about the smell. When he'd saved the people in Utica, he hadn't had time to think. He hadn't noticed when his clothes shredded from his grotesque body. He hadn't minded the searing heat of the fire, and it didn't matter whether the crowd, swarming like ants below him, had been cheering or laughing at his bare ass. Back then, he'd been able to focus on the men and women climbing across his arms. "'clinging to his neck, weeping with gratitude. "'But he hadn't been the stilt in Utica. "'He'd been Philbrick Van Loon, "'a thug who didn't earn enough "'collecting a bootlegger's debts "'to pay for the doctors his dying mother needed. "'He'd been a man who could save strangers, "'but not the only person in the world who loved him. "'The memory made the stilt angry. "'He tapped that anger "'to pull more and more stuff into himself, "'getting bigger and stronger.' His heart hardened and now his thoughts grew sluggish and stony as the monster tilted and began to lift off the street. He was the stilt. Yes, stilt got tall. Stilt was, Hold it there, pal! Hold what? Stilt didn't have any pals. Stop! You hear me? No higher! The stilt couldn't see anything but coarse hair and gray skin. With a groan, he turned his head. The engineer in the gas mask and some cops and firemen and construction workers were frantically working the sling down the length of the corpse. The stilt couldn't smell anything anymore, his nose filled with stuff. Okay, let it go! The stilt didn't understand. Let who go? His mother? That secretary? He couldn't remember. Missing? Missy? Wake up, big guy! Let go! There's something wrong with him. He can't hear us! Hit the siren! A high and low metallic yowling, as if of a machine in pain. The furious clatter of bells penetrated the crust, squeezing the stilt's brain. Stuff began to flow away. He could think again, and his first thought was, He had done it. He was... Amazing. They took what seemed like hundreds of pictures. He got 10, 15, 30 feet tall. He presented arms folded, boxer at the ready, and muscle man poses, then filled the five-story entrance to the Empire State Building for them. He spelled his name for the reporters from the Daily Mirror and the Evening Post, told them how he'd chosen his superhero identity, and explained the latter on his costume. He glossed over his recent past, since he didn't want anyone talking to the cops in Utica. The engineer asked for his autograph. His first ever. He printed it. The Stilt. He gave a kid a ride on his shoulders, although the brat held his nose the entire time. Yet, for all that, the Stilt's debut went nothing like Big had imagined it would. This was not a crime he'd foiled, after all, more like garbage he'd collected. His costume was stained and he smelled like hell's own outhouse, which meant that the crowd, with the exception of the kid, shied away. No pretty girls offered to kiss him, and he signed just the one autograph. Then, as he was telling his story all over again to the reporter from the Times, there was a flash of light in the no-man's land between the monster and the crowd, followed closely by what sounded like an explosion. He turned to see a teenager wearing a white lab coat, white shirt, blue necktie, and Doughboy helmet painted blue to match. The kid staggered and fell to hands and knees in a circle of smoldering asphalt. When he shook himself and got up, Big could see crude white lightning bolts painted on the helmet. The kid glanced from the butchered corpse sprawled on the crippled truck to Big, and his face twisted with anger. The Times reporter waved, but Billy Bolt gave him the finger. Then he began to glitter and turned into a million snowflakes of light, which burst into light and sound. He left only a bright blue afterimage and a ringing in Biggs' ears. Maybe he was supposed to be insulted or jealous or scared, but Big's only thought was that the kid's costume needed work. There was a cop in Mendy's deli taking a statement from the angry clerk. Both turned when Big came through the door. You! The clerk looked like he was ready to leap across the counter to throttle Big. This is your fault. Huh? Are you saying this is the thief? The cop glowered, as if sizing Big up for handcuffs. I'm saying this is the freak who put on the damn show, and I'm the lunkhead who left the watch. "'Do you know anything about this, sir?' "'About what?' "'My till is empty, and three Westphalian hands gone!' The counterman was shouting now. "'I've been robbed!' So had Big. The phone booth was empty. The thief must have used the suitcase to carry off his swag. Big had lost everything he owned. The cop listened to his story, but didn't seem much interested. He jotted Big's name in a notebook. Mister, you can't be leaving valuables in phone booths. He raised the notebook to his face as if to ward off Big Stink. Not in this town anyway. Well, what am I going to do? said Big. I'm new in town and now I'm broke. I've got no place to go. Try the poor house. The cop snapped the notebook shut. It was almost dark by the time Big got in line at 432 East 25th Street. On the way, he'd clipped a flannel shirt and bib overalls with a patch on one knee from a clothesline strung across a four-story fire escape. He thought they made him look like a rag picker. He wadded his reeking costume and clamped it under his arm as the line moved up the front steps of the municipal lodging house. The frayed man at the reception table wanted to send him to the Registration Bureau at South Ferry until he saw that Big was barefooted. So he took Bigg's particulars. Philbrick Van Loon, age 33, born oriskany New York, lived 33 years in the United States, lived six hours in New York City, last address, 12 Faxton Street, Utica, New York, occupation, none, military service, none, not married, no relatives to contact in case of emergency. They sent him to the mess hall where he dipped sliced bread into a bowl of beef stew that was mostly carrots and potatoes and onions. After dinner, he traded his stolen clothes and his costume for a brass chit embossed with a number 48. His things were taken away to be disinfected. They'd be returned in the morning. They gave him and the other homeless men towels and nightshirts. The shower was lukewarm, but Big stood under it, scrubbing until his skin stung. And afterwards, he climbed into the lower of a double-decked iron bed. He got a folded blanket to sleep on instead of a mattress and another blanket for cover. But the dormitory was warm, and it didn't matter if his bunkmate snored. Big couldn't sleep anyway. He lay awake thinking of all the things he'd ever done wrong, the money he'd stolen the men he'd beaten up. He thought of his mother and what she'd say if she could see him now. He wished he had a drink. Just one tumbler of Happy Reagan's phony whiskey or Mickey McCabe's poteen would have turned the world right side up. He should never have left the suitcase in the phone booth. The Sky Guard would never have done anything that stupid. And he would never have seen the inside of a poorhouse probably lived in one of those mansions facing Central Park. If only Big still had Roosevelt's card. He imagined Missy LeHand waiting for him in the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria. And the more he thought about her, the more glamorous and beautiful and distant she became. She'd be wearing an evening dress. It would be silvery and show her shoulders. She'd be sipping champagne. Nobody like him would be crazy to chase a girl like her except that she had chased him. He left right after breakfast because he had a lot of ground to cover. He was almost ten miles to Washington Heights. They had found him a pair of brown wingtip shoes that were almost the right size. He wore his costume under his clothes. On the way uptown, he stole a copy of the Times from a newsstand and found a daily mirror in the trash at a bus stop. He was disappointed to see that the Times didn't have photographs. At least they spelled his name right on page two. He made the front page of the mirror under a caption, Stilt Man Dumps Ape. It took him most of the morning to hike to the new bridge, and as he climbed the ramp, he discovered that half of Manhattan had turned out for the dedication. He threaded through several marching bands that were forming up into a parade on the entrance ramp. Big strode down the center lane, scanning the temporary bleachers on either side of the bridge for Missy or Roosevelt. He hadn't worked out much of a plan besides showing up. They must have read about him in the papers. That would give him something to talk about. Maybe he could have his picture taken with the governor, meet some of the other swells. At the least, he could ask Roosevelt for another card and Missy for another chance. Evergreen garlands and American flags draped the dignitary's podium. Roosevelt wore a formal three-piece suit and a top hat. A white carnation glowed on his lapel. His smile was even brighter. Big paused and started to unbutton the stolen shirt. He was planning on getting tall before he made his final approach as the stilt. But Missy came out of nowhere and caught his arm. Button yourself up right now, Mr. Van Loon. "'Missy, I can explain.' "'Walk with me.' She threw all of her weight into marching him past the podium toward New Jersey. "'It wasn't my fault,' she seemed not to hear. "'Did you see I made the papers?' She picked up the pace. Finally, when they were past the bleachers and onto the central span, she stopped. "'You went to see the monkey instead of me.' She was as cool as a cloudy Saturday in October. "'Why am I not surprised?' It wasn't that way at all. No. He told her everything, more than he intended to. He told her about McCabe and picking up the monster and the smell and the missing suitcase and the stolen clothes and the iron bed at the municipal lodging house. He said he'd spent most of the night thinking about her waiting for him. I didn't wait. I was back in my room by 9.35, she said. Well, that's good he said, although he knew it wasn't. But you asked me to come, and I wanted to be there. That's why I'm here now. I thought that maybe you and I... There is no you and I. But you wrote on the card. We read the papers this morning. I had to remind Franklin that we just met you. He has a lot on his mind. Real problems, not your foolishness. He looked back at the podium. He's going to run for president, you know. I'm his secretary, "'and his wife doesn't live with him. "'There's nothing between us, romantically.' "'The words seemed to stick in her throat. "'But people talk. "'It helps if I'm seen in public with other men.' "'Big felt as empty as he'd ever been. "'He thought if he didn't get tall soon, he might blow away. "'Do you think he might give me another card?' he said. "'She never got the chance to answer. "'Big didn't see the flash.' but the thunderclap made him jump. He looked up at the tower of exposed steel on the New York side and saw a figure in white bounce and land on one of the two downstream suspension cables. He could hear an ugly sizzling. The fluffy clouds above them twisted and darkened as if stained by sin. The sky turned green. What was the kid trying to do? Land in front of Roosevelt's podium and introduce himself? "'Too much steel for that. "'Had the kid even seen the bridge before?' "'There was a lightning strike on the tower "'that seemed to skitter down the cable "'to the writhing figure of Billy Bolt. "'His helmet flew off, and he caught fire. "'The next flash cut a suspender cable "'directly beneath him. "'It tipped over the edge of the bridge. "'People poured out of the stands, "'shouting and screaming. "'One last lightning bolt skewered the burning boy, "'knocking him off the bridge.' severing one of the two main cables big could feel the deck of the bridge shudder they were doomed unless the stilt did something amazing he climbed onto a support truss at the edge of the bridge the river was impossibly far beneath him he'd have to get as tall as he'd ever been what are you doing missy was behind him i'll try to jump but if i can't you'll have to push me it was hard to imagine the stuff with her there I think I can hold the bridge up. What? No! You want him to be president? His feet burst out of the wingtips, and the overalls split at the crotch. No, I mean, you're already too big. How am I supposed to push you? The stilt was twenty feet tall and growing. Go get help, then! He concentrated on his legs. He thought if he was bottom-heavy, he would sink upright to the bottom of the river. He never knew how he came off the bridge. Maybe he stepped off, even though his legs were stone. He fell forever, all the while losing stuff. He thought he saw the top of the Empire State Building. Were there really roller coasters all along the Palisades? Then came a giant slap as he hit the water, followed by a nightmare of darkness, cold, silence, and no air. The bottom was the cruelest shock of all because he believed he was already dead, Then his head broke the surface of the river. In a panic, the stilt got very tall, very fast, faster than he had ever grown, taller than was possible. Still, he had to raise his arms over his head to reach the bottom of the bridge. But he did it. And then he was naked in front of all of New York and New Jersey and Missy LeHand and maybe the future president of the United States. But the stilt was beyond embarrassment. The stuff filled his head, squeezing his imagination flat, turning his brain to stone. His last thought was that his mother had been wrong. He was amazing. From Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia. Philbrick Van Loon, 1898 to 1931. Also known as Stiltman, was an American superhero who had the ability to grow to enormous heights. Scientists at the Carson Institute theorize he was able to accomplish this by manipulating his molecular structure. Born in Utica, New York, little is known of his life before his arrival in New York City in October 1931. In one 24-hour period, he managed to remove the body of King Kong from where it had fallen from the Empire State Building and attempt to hold up the George Washington Bridge after it was damaged in a freak electrical storm. Othmar Aman, chief engineer of the bridge, has stated that its structure was never compromised and that Van Loon's sacrifice, while well-intentioned, was unnecessary. For undetermined reasons, Van Loon was unable to recover from his final transformation. His solidified body stands today, 247 feet from the bed of a Hudson River to the bottom deck of the bridge. This superhero-related article is a stub. You can help Wikipedia by expanding it.
0: There you go. Do not again. Copyright is James and James. <laughs> Thank you as well for the rating. <laughs> I honestly, g- get gents, it's been a f- fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, that is it. On the day after Farfetch Fables launched the new fantasy podcast, I hope you will come over there and have a listen and you know enjoy it and you know spread the word about. It. That would be fantastic. That would be amazing. Until next week, I would just like to say. Good from me.
2: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment?
0: Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... ...Social Sofa, of machine...
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
2: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction.